Due to the themes of this podcast, listener discretion is advised. Lock your doors. Close the blinds. Change your passwords. This is Secrets and Spies. Secrets and Spies is a podcast that dives into the world of espionage, terrorism, geopolitics, and intrigue. This episode is presented by Matt Fulton and produced by Chris Carr. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Secrets and Spies. On today's episode, I'm speaking once again with Philip Smythe, previously a SORA fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy from 2018 to 2021. Philip is one of the leading researchers studying Iranian-backed militia groups in the Middle East. He returns to the podcast today to unpack the January 28th drone attack against a U.S. military outpost in Jordan that killed three service members and the resulting round of airstrikes beginning on February 2nd, targeting militias believed to have been responsible. Philip gives his take on the degree of Iranian control over these militias, analyzes the effectiveness of the U.S. response thus far, and tells us what, if anything, can be done to deter future attacks. As always, a couple of housekeeping notes first. If you enjoy the show, please leave a five-star rating and review on your podcast streaming app of choice. And if you're not already, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Super easy. Just go to patreon.com forward slash secrets and spies. Your generosity helps keep this podcast going. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. The opinions expressed by guests on Secrets and Spies do not necessarily represent those of the producers and sponsors of this podcast. Philip Smythe, thanks for coming back on the pod on such short notice, buddy. It's, as always, good to have you. Wish it could be under better circumstances, but that's the that's the business we're in. Nature of the beast. Yeah, really. So I uh, asked you to come back on today to um, unpack the attack on our service members in um, Jordan and uh, discuss some of the um, follow-on retaliation that the um, U.S. Air Force executed just. So we're recording this on on Monday. The first round of airstrikes as of this recording was on Friday, and we're going to talk about that all in a bit. Before we get going, though, for anyone who, who, who might have missed the first couple episodes since October that you've been on, tell us a bit about you and your work. Okay. Um, well, my name's Philip Smythe. Uh, you can follow a lot of my work. Uh, i, I put a lot of it up on Twitter, but if you Google my name, it's two L's, S-M-Y-T-H. Um, I follow uh, Iranian-backed organizations. I mean, you may hear the term proxy thrown around or Iranian-backed uh, militias like Shia militias. Uh, there are other groups that are not Shia. Uh, sometimes they have uh, different ideological beliefs uh, from what the Iranians promote. Uh, but in general, it's it's this wide network of proxy organizations that Iran sponsors and pushes uh, and I tend to follow those guys, and I've been doing that for, what, uh, over 15 years now. Um, did a lot of uh, early work when it was not really an issue that many people uh, cared about, um, and just kind of kept doing it since then. Um, I've worked at a number of uh, major think tanks in Washington, D.C. Uh, I've lived in the Middle East, and uh, I regularly engage and I you know, engage a lot of uh, Shia militia uh, members, uh, commanders, uh, follow a lot of their their activities. Um, and it's been a, a very, very long process and kind of a, a long kind of, let's call it like an institutional kind of growth 
uh, that I've tried to uh, promote for following a lot of these groups. So that's uh, essentially what I do, the uh, the long and short of it. Thank you for that. And as I've I've said on here before, I think you're kind of like the guy for this. So it's as always, it's 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 good to have you on when something flares up regarding these groups here. So, okay, so to get us started off here, I'm going to give us a few background notes on the on the attack itself in, in, in Jordan and uh, how we got to this specific round here. So on January 28th, uh, an attack drone launched by a Shia militia struck the living quarters of the U.S. logistical support base Tower 22 in Rukban, northeast Jordan, near the tri-border area with Iraq and Syria. The outpost is part of a network of U.S. bases in the region established in 2015 to support an ongoing advise and assist mission for Kurdish forces combating ISIS remnants in the area. The attack killed three U.S. service members who were asleep in their tents at the time, all subsequently identified as belonging to the 718th Engineer Company, a U.S. Army Reserve unit at Fort Moore, Georgia. 47 others were reportedly injured. The Islamic resistance in Iraq, an umbrella term encompassing several Iranian-backed militia groups, claimed responsibility later that day. Since Hamas's October 7th attacks against Israel and the beginning of the Gaza War, Iranian-linked groups struck U.S. and coalition forces throughout the Middle East on 160 occasions, injuring approximately 70 personnel. Uh, the U.S. retaliated for these incidents only eight times previously. So, Philip, before we get into uh, the U.S. response to these attacks, if you can tell us a bit, any kind of, well, background on this group calling itself the Islamic resistance in Iraq, who they are, and any kind of chatter that that, that, that you've been monitoring uh, amongst these guys that perhaps preceded the attack itself. Sure. Um, so I, I think we need a little bit more context with a lot of this. I mean, it's, it's yeah. interesting, you know, how I'm seeing a lot of the reporting coming out. Uh, just kind of this accepted reality. Oh, this this Islamic resistance, and they're connected with a bunch of militias. Okay, you know what does that mean? Um, since uh, 2020, and this is when the United States killed uh, two rather prominent uh, leaders in kind of the Iranian proxy machinery, meaning the guys uh, really managing and growing and creating uh, a lot of these proxy networks that they're that the Iranians are using. The first and foremost of them was Qasem Soleimani, who is a uh, the leading general for the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Quds Force, uh, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, I mean, think of that as kind of the central hub uh, for the Iranians when they are projecting and, and creating, managing, and controlling a lot of the proxy groups or using them. Um, and then his lieutenant, who was an Iraqi, uh, is actually his mother was Iranian, but he was an Iraqi named Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis. Um, and he was uh, a, a prominent leader in what's called al-Hasht al-Shabi. Uh, which uh, you might see it in the news in English. It's the Popular Mobilization Forces or Popular Mobilization Units. That's a collective of uh, primarily Shia militias that are Iraqi government sponsored, but they are dominated by uh, Iranian controlled groups and uh, Iranian backed groups. Uh, so when those two were killed, uh, the Iranians uh, had a strategy that, that came forth in Iraq, which was to create front groups. Uh, and these front groups would sometimes execute attacks. Uh, they would do different threats against American forces. They would, wouldn't just attack American forces, but it was also attacking uh, perceived and very real uh, American allies uh, and, and kind of other partners in the region that went for uh, the Kurds at times. Sometimes it was uh, uh, allied states or at least partner states uh, like the UAE, Kuwait, Saudi, um, there were threats and sometimes there were, you know, attacks that were, they claimed that they had launched. Um, 
So you have these front groups kind of operating that way. And when I say a front group, um, imagine it's, imagine I've already established an organization and then I'm claiming responsibility using uh, another another name, uh, kind of a, a like a nom de plume in, in literature or a nom de guerre, um, a name of war that I've just kind of slapped on the top. Now, part of that, you're, you know, you're probably sitting there thinking, well, why would they go through all that trouble if they've already have like a million different militias that are out there and, you know, doing all that. Um, and I, I would make the argument that it's a form of kind of implausible, plausible deniability. You know, it gives just enough for a policymaker who doesn't really want to act, like enough kind of leeway, if an American policymaker, enough leeway to go, oh, it's kind of confusing. I guess we don't know what to do here. And I don't, oh, who knows? Um, I just want to make it very, very clear, though, that it was quite clear from the beginning which organizations were being used by the Iranians, specific militias, specific Iraqi Shia militias. Um, that were being used to kind of uh, populate this front strategy. Um, so I guess going to kind of the current uh, setup, you know, you mentioned the Islamic resistance in Iraq. Uh, the Arabic name is Al-Muqalma al-Islamiyya fil Iraq. Um, to clarify something else, I mean, you're going to love this with a million different names and, you know, a lot of repeating names and a lot of, a lot of stuff like this. Like you, you have to be permanently on, uh, and also kind of operating in, in a lot of binary code to, uh, to really <laughs> get it all down. Um, but I, the Islamic resistance in Iraq is actually a, a quite a common, uh, quite a common name that's used. That's attached to quite a few, uh, uh, organizations that the the Iranians use, uh, not just in Iraq. I mean, using the term Islamic resistance, I mean, Hezbollah, Lebanese Hezbollah is called Al-Muqalma al-Islamiyya al fil Lebanon. Um, and, you know, it's the Islamic resistance in Lebanon. Um, you know, they use this every other time. I mean, they've even tried to describe, you know, the Houthis uh, known as Ansar al-Law as, you know, the Islamic resistance in Yemen. You know, they slap this onto pretty much everything. So, you know, if you wanted to pick a front group and calling it, oh, it's the Islamic resistance in Iraq. Okay, which one? <laughs> what, right. what do you mean? The, the, the broader overview kind of structure of all these different militias? Um, that they've used before, or do you mean something new? Do you mean something here? Do you mean something there? But in this case, uh, you know, using this this kind of this this term, it's it specifically refers to, even though they they didn't really completely openly say it, but this is really how it's operating. This Islamic resistance in Iraq, this front group, the specific front group, um, is populated by two major parties, and there's one other side party that's kind of in there that also is is quite a quite a prominent one, but has not been as open uh, as the other two. And so I'll just, I'll name all three of these Iraqi Shia militias that are, and when I say they're controlled by Iran, they are controlled by Iran. There is no doubt that the Iranians through the IRGC not only have very, very long links to these groups, uh, but that there is a good amount of control. And I can, I can outline that if you'd like, yeah. because it's interesting what was passing around as news um, from certain shadowy figures in, in the administration and elsewhere. Well, we just have no idea what the deal is with these groups. No, everybody knew, like everybody knew it did not take a specialist like me, you know, it, they, they knew. Um, but anyway, first group that's there is a group called Harakat Hezbollah al-Nujabah, or also known as Harakat al-Nujabah. Um, I can actually say, um, interestingly, two of the groups that are mentioned in here, I wrote the first English profiles on them that are online. Uh, the, sadly the profiles, because a lot of the, the data was lost when, you know, the servers were changed and a lot, there was a lot of other stuff going on technically with the website. Um, but I do, <laughs> I did write about these guys very early on. So it's interesting to see them come back now. Um, but the first one that Nujaba, um, 
actually wrote that profile on them. And I know a lot of their early command structure. I've talked to these guys quite a bit. Uh, they were one of the leading recruiters for the Iranians of Iraqi Shia to go to Syria. And they were created in 2013. Uh, they were split off of another group called Asaib Ahlul Haq, actually a former secretary general of Asaib Ahlul Haq uh, named Akram Kabi was used by the Iranians to kind of populate and uh, and, and grow this group. Uh, but at kind of it's in initial stages. It was... Um, I would say it's it was far more disunited than than what many people thought. You know, it was kind of being populated and grown by the Iranians with some heavy guidance, you know, to uh, the Iraqis who were on the ground there. Um, so you have that organization. And Akram Kabi himself has taken on uh, quite a prominent role in kind of this front strategy. Now, when I, I was mentioning the front strategy before, um, that really kind of started and, and and really started to gain some traction from 2020 to 2021. 2021 in particular was when it really started to get moving. Um, but he had come out and was quite a public face for these front groups. Like there was no denying that, you know, there was a clear connection that was going back to, at the very least, his organization. Um, so Kabi has been out there and been quite a, a quite a mouthpiece for for a number of different fronts. But with the Islamic resistance in Iraq, you know, this new front group, um, he has been, again, quite an open person talking about it. In fact, Nujabah from the beginning, uh, since and when I say from the beginning, I mean since October 7th and since this kind of new wave of attacks using a front group uh, was initiated, um, Kabi really took an outsized role uh, talking about talking about kind of what his group was involved with. Like they were not hiding the fact that they were part of this Islamic resistance in Iraq that was launching attacks. Uh, and I mean, that went down to, you know, everything from the propaganda footage they were putting up, the statements that they were releasing. They were very, very, very open about it. Um, so that's just, I mean, think of that as kind of, you know, one of a few of the groups. So second group, which is uh, extraordinarily important for this and extraordinarily important, the Iraqi Shia proxy of the Iranians uh, to the point where they are pretty directly controlled, uh, is a group called Qatab Hezbollah. So the second group, Qatab Hezbollah, uh, literally it's, it's the Hezbollah battalions or Hezbollah brigades. It's, I, you know, some people will say you don't want to confuse them with Lebanese Hezbollah. Uh, I mean, I would agree there one's an Iraqi group and one's a Lebanese group, but they essentially follow the same ideological precepts. Uh, they have the same level of connection and link with the Iranians. Uh, Qatab Hezbollah in Iraq is considered a first among equals uh, when it comes to Iran's proxies, just as Lebanese Hezbollah is considered a first among equal among the rest of its proxies. So it's a very, very important group. And in fact, um, Qatab Hezbollah was created by the man I had mentioned earlier, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis. Um, he had actually taken guys who were even more loyal already out of a loyalist Iraqi Shia militia group called the Badr Brigades at the time, uh, put them into special groups. He, they were in five different networks, and then he combined them all together uh, to create this group, Qatab Hezbollah. And Qatab Hezbollah, right now, they're, uh, one of their commanders uh, named Abu Fadak al-Muhammad Ali, um, he is actually the operations head. He's like the big cheese guy who controls al-Hashd al-Shabi. Interesting how you're, you're placing all these guys from these little nodes and all these important positions who control different things. So Qatab Hezbollah has also had a very, very important role in uh, maintaining and being a, a big part, uh, kind of an operational part and intelligence part 
to this Islamic resistance in Iraq. Um, so that's part for them. Another group that I would mention, and this is a group that I actually, I, you know, I know in Arabic or English, I wrote the first profile on them called Kitab Said al-Shuhada, um, Masters of the Martyrs Brigade. Um, and that was actually, this is like classic. I mean, I, I know people are going to listen to this and they're going to get lost with, oh my God, this group is just split into this group and this and this and this. And, and I think, you know, from my writing that boy, do I love me some splinters? Like I, I just oh, love yeah. hyper complexities. It, it, <laughs> it's like looking at it like a turbulent movement and a watch. It just keeps getting more and more complicated. But I mean, at the end of the day, it's really not. Um, so one of those networks, I mentioned that there were five networks that were combined and made into Kitab Hezbollah. Well, one of those networks run by two prominent commanders, one named Abu Allah al-Wala'i, um, and then uh, the other one who's known, known as Abu Mustafa. Um, they kind of had an issue, and, inter- and I mean, this was how the Arabic press was reporting it. They had an internal issue in Kitab Hezbollah where they were not as favorable with some of the leadership that was there. Some claimed it was because that leadership was a bit too youthful. Other times it was, you know, these guys wanted to be involved in politics and kind of get their their take, whereas Kitab Hezbollah wasn't really allowing that at the time. Um, and very early on, Kitab Said al-Shuhada um, was allowed to kind of split off around the same time that Harakat Hezbollah al-Nujabah did. This was in tw- early 2013, late 2012. Um, and it's interesting, both groups were essentially pushed to do a lot of heavy recruitment to get guys over to Syria. You know, this was a way the Iranians used them to not just prove loyalty, but to also prove utility, you know, and to kind of keep those pressure points going within, you know, a larger proxy network. Um, so you have uh, Kitab Said al-Shuhada there, and they are, again, they may have had certain issues internally, but, you know, sometimes I think people, especially people in the press and people in policy, uh, this is often a, an effect of, of reading the wrong international relations books, uh, will regularly think that, oh, you know, there's an issue there, we can exploit that. No, these guys are IRGC fighters. I mean, they, they are Iraqis, but they have been alongside running networks that the IRGC has used uh, to attack Americans, to attack others, uh, to kind of build political and military influence. They are never leaving that umbrella, the the Iranian umbrella, that is. Um, so these are three hyper-extreme organizations that are involved in this. And again, what they do is they will populate the group, they will use different operational, uh, kind of different operational leaders, um, and they'll use uh, kind of different little structures that they can go out. Like, let's say, for instance, they've been approved to use uh, a heavier gauge or a heavier a heavier rocket or to use a UAV. Uh, so for instance, that attack that happened out in Jordan, you know, that was part of that larger base setup of Al-Tanaf, um, which is in southern Syria, but it extends into Jordan. It's got its own kind of Syrian rebel groups that are there, you know, so on and so forth. And the U.S. is helping them uh, both in the anti-ISIS campaign, but also clearly and increasingly to kind of counter the Iranians uh, who are moving around in that area. So you would get certain operational groups, let's say, you know, today we're going to use Qatab Hezbollah, they're going to launch, you know, some UAVs at an American base, and then the Islamic resistance in Iraq is going to take credit for it. And then you'll also kind of notice a little shift in kind of messaging that will come out where maybe Qatab Hezbollah is a little bit more detailed in their statements about the attack. Like it kind of, it sends these little, 
these little hints at times. Um, Nujaba is probably the least nuanced when it comes to it. They're they're quite open. And then other times you'll get kind of public statements that'll come from all three of those leaders. You know, Abu Allah from Kitab Sayyid al-Shuhada. Um, you'll get one from Akram Kabi from Harakat Hezbollah al-Nujaba. And then you'll get some statement that will come out either from a spokesman or from some, uh, you know, a variety of different leaders within Kitab Hezbollah, you know, about the right of the resistance to resist the American forces and push them out of Iraq and, you know, something along those lines. So that's generally how they 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 kind of work that and and we can also see this from the American I mean you you said eight responses um and I would say you know how are we defining responses here right um because I mean I would I would argue that really we had maybe two true responses um out of those eight uh and actually you know maybe it's if we're counting the most recent one as nine then I would say, you know, two or three. The reason I'm saying that is because most of these, most of these strikes were actually tactical in nature and they were protective in nature. Um, so we were not going out and just, you know, knocking off another commander of Kataba's Bola or knocking off another, you know, uh, another main leader like uh, Qasem Suleimani or Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis. No, we were going after their tactical teams that were at that moment setting up and trying to launch rockets or launch UAVs. And in a number of those attacks, we had killed uh, a number of Kataab Hezbollah people. I remember there was one that killed, I think, five of them in one shot. Um, and then they hit uh, a facility down in Jipal Sakhar, which is, you know, Kataab Hezbollah central. They essentially run a private fiefdom down there. Um, but I would say out of those those responses, there was one that targeted an operational commander, and he was quite prominent within Harakat Hezbollah al-Nujabah. Um, and that was what at the end, I want to say it was in the end of November, early December. Yeah. It was December. Yeah. It's it, every, I, it, it's interesting, you know, every day is flowing into the next. It was before Christmas. Yes. It was definitely before Christmas. Okay. And they got him around, but he was, he was in Baghdad area. So I'm thinking now it's probably the, the, the most that I would count as, you know, a quote unquote response, uh, that you're actually going after a mid-level commander, uh, and, and, you know, taking him off the battlefield. Um, so it, it really hasn't, it's been far more tactical in nature, the way the United States has responded to a lot of this and the responses, I mean, you'll, you'll hear the line out of DC. Well, we want to deescalate. We want to deescalate. We want to deescalate. We want to deescalate. It's very interesting when the other party that's involved, which is Iran, um, has very slowly, you know, kind of run this up a bit where they have continually escalated, whether it's in the Red Sea with Ansar al-Law or the Houthis. Uh, or in Iraq using these organizations, or in Syria also using those organizations, or with Lebanese Hezbollah uh, against the Israelis, um, and also different threats that are launched, you know, against the United States uh, by Lebanese Hezbollah. Um, it's it's kind of an intriguing picture, you know. You're, you're it's almost like you're speaking past the issue. Hey, we want to deescalate. Meanwhile, the bully keeps punching you in the face. You know, it's like kind of like one of those. Yeah. Um, like, you know, what do you think about it now? What do you think about it now? Hey, look, I'm just trying to deescalate. Um, now, maybe a wrong comparison given, you know, we also have aircraft carriers and, you know, long range bombers. But, you know, in a way it is kind of like that. It's like it's like the guy sitting behind you constantly like flicking you in the back of the head going, what do you do about it? Yeah, what are you going to do about it? And then when he gets hit in the face, it's like, we have to stop this aggression. You know, it's right. kind of the Iranian angle on this. But um, I mean, what I would say is it, it has not. It, it's very interesting how the administration, the uh, Biden administration has been handling this, particularly with with how the responses have been kind of meted out. Um, and I would say the most recent one that occurred over the weekend, uh, or I should say Friday, 
Um, but I, 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 one could make the argument that it was the first kind of real response. The problem with the attack itself, though, uh, was that the Iranians were warned for a week in advance. They were also told essentially what, you know, they weren't necessarily told what the targeting packages would be, but they were told, you know, hey, we're going to go after IRGC targets. Well, okay, you know, you want every, everyone to go to ground and hide and not get nailed. Well, there you go. Um, it's a great way to do it. Well, before we dive into the airstrikes and and the strategy behind it and the effectiveness or the or the lack thereof, there's been a lot of discussion since this attack on Tower 22 about the issue of control. You know, to what degree does the Iranians exercise like operational control over these militias? And it, it, in in my mind, the debate about it has just gotten very kind of silly and and muddled down in the weeds to the point that it's sort of missing the most obvious answer. And I'm wondering if you could give us like a bit of clarity here, like their control over these groups or 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 the lack thereof what is the extent of that I, i'm well here's the thing I, i'm noticing and i you've already heard this from me and i think you've seen when i've thrown stuff up on twitter i tend to be mm-hmm. a little bit uh, sometimes i get pissed off enough where i'm just like are you kidding oh yeah um it, it's this was one of those moments where I'd say, are you freaking kidding me and you know reaching out to people in press going is this for like is this what i'm seeing published there was an argument coming out now there are truisms that are there, but again, it's been so decontextualized that, you know, for for the average person reading this, I mean, geez, you know, I just scrolled through how many different, you know, t- different Arabic language militia, you know, uh, militias with complicated names that, you know, another group is named the same thing. And it's in a region that we, we've been in now fighting for how many decades. Um, it's a confusing process. And what I notice is that's a lot of political playing that was going on regarding you know, who's really in control. Um, so let's get something straight right off the bat. The Iranians, there there really has been no argument that the Iranians don't always maintain 100% control on a proxy. It's, you know, and I, I want to I get this straight, though. Um, there is, there's a proxy and then there's a proxy. You know, there are groups that the Iranians control that are believers in their ideological system, like true believers. They they believe yeah. in what's called absolute wilayat al-faqi, which technically means that that group, if Khamenei himself gives an order because he is the supreme leader, then guess what? That's what goes. Because he is the mouthpiece for Imam al-Mahdi before Imam al-Mahdi returns to earth. That is the, the theocratic ideological view that they follow. And, you know, whether that's extended through the mouth of an IRGC commander or what, or through a representative that's associated with Khamenei, who's issuing, you know, specific fatwas and, and different edicts, you know, taklif shari, uh, stuff like that, um, then that's how it goes. Now, those groups, I mean, a good example of one of them is Lebanese Hezbollah. But that doesn't mean that Lebanese Hezbollah does not have its own, you know, autonomous interests. It doesn't mean that it doesn't... Um, push back at times if need be but how much pushback does that really you know, how much of that really matters with specific organizations like this but you know at the end of the day there's also other issues too and I, and I don't want people to think well wow that sounds like a pretty good level of control i guess it's all like that not necessarily um i could also make the argument you know that the iranians have had issues with some of their I'll call them better Iraqi groups at times. That that would be like KH was probably one of their better ones. Well, Kataba's Bola, like I like I mentioned before, that's KH. 
Yeah. Um, Kitab Hezbollah has been extraordinarily loyal. In fact, they were right. loyalists pulled out of loyalists and they were given, you know, a lot of very fancy weaponry very early on. Their commanders were like true believers. Uh, they were started by probably the, one of the biggest Iraqi true believers, Abu Mahdi al-Muhandis. Um, like you couldn't get sharper than that. And by the way, they were also true believers, ideologically speaking. So you have that context there too. But there are other groups that also, you know, when when KH was created, um, like Asaib al-Haq, which I mentioned before, um, Asaib al-Haq, uh, they were peeled away from Muqtada Sadr's ranks, both to put pressure on Sadr, uh, but to also kind of maybe be another angle that the Iranians could penetrate in the Iraqi Shia sphere. Um, now, AAH, uh, which is Asaib al-Haq, uh, it's run by Kaysal Khazali. Um, they they haven't been without their issues with the Iranians because again they're coming out of the Sadrist stream. It's not always the most pro-Iranian. Um, you know they've had other little issues before, but they've also it doesn't mean that their disloyalty at times has meant that they're a terrible proxy. Look, they've supplied guys for Syria. They have supplied plenty of fighters to uh, manage affairs in Iraq for the Iranians for all intents and purposes. They have aided in other overseas adventures, uh, including in Bahrain. Uh, so they've done stuff like that before. Um, but sometimes it comes down to, you know, hey, it's maybe better to play this Iraqi nationalist angle and let's distance ourselves from the Iranians, or maybe the Iranians are telling us to do stuff that maybe we don't want to do. Uh, maybe we're trying to grow a little bit more autonomy on this side. So occasionally that does happen. And I do have to mention with AAH, uh, I've mentioned the front strategy before, AAH was involved in that. There were a number of reports that came out that AAH uh, actually disobeyed the Iranians. They were using these attacks to demonstrate kind of their own bona fides uh, domestically that they could be tough guys in the room and, you know, do as they pleased, you know, and they could, you know, hit American sites. And if maybe there was a prohibition on rocketing the embassy today, maybe they they would do it occasionally to show that they had some level of, of independence and autonomy. Um, now, how that grew out, I mean, again, it's clear that these AAH groups grew, they kind of coincided with the other major effort that was going on, uh, that was involving, you know, a variety of other uh, Iranian proxies. But, you know, when that split came and how deep it was, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, they're no longer Iranian proxies anymore. You know, they are. They're still in that right. network. They're still deconflicting with the, uh, with, the, uh, with the IRGC, with the Iranians and with other groups. And, you know, the, the Iranians aren't stupid on this either. So, you know, it's kind of like saying, well, we have all these groups, what do we do? It's interesting how a lot of people, and I've written extensively about this, how the wide kind of pantheon of these different groups, there's actually a benefit to it. You know, the more splinters I create, the more tension I create within those ranks, it oddly kind of, it, it operationalizes them in a way where it makes them a bit more utilitarian. You know, how much support am I getting from the Iranians if I give a, a thousand guy, extra guys to the front in Syria? Well, they're going to give me more money. They're going to give me more influence. They might give me a new television network and some uh, media support on that. They might give me some more cash privately. You know, those thoughts come into it. And don't think the Iranians aren't looking at this like, hey, we could, you know, pit Peter against Paul and, you know, see what kind of happens. Um, and one of my, I, I, you know, I wouldn't call it an assumption because I've done enough interviews now where it kind of sounds, uh, pun intended, kosher enough. Um, but there was one where, you know, uh, Harakat Hezbollah al-Nujabah, which was split from AAH's ranks. Very interesting that it was split from those ranks using a, a rather popular former secretary general of that group. May, may there have been personal disagreements between Kaysal Hazali and Akram Kabi? Sure. But the Iranians are looking at this like, 
hey, we don't want to throw away, you know, the baby with the bathwater, number one. Number two, this might be very good to put some pressure on AAH when they, you know, maybe they want to be a little too autonomous and we don't necessarily want that. And here's a good way to do it. Here's a good way to overshadow Kaisa Kazali uh, within a Sauterist network that we want to control. So there's these little pieces that are in there, you know, okay, well, we're now using this new splinter of a splinter of a splinter of a splinter to have this add-on effect. Uh, I mean, it does sound complicated, but at the end of the day, when you're kind of running this like a business and it's it's kind of cellular replication of groups, you know, you want sometimes those cells to play against one another if one might become cancerous, you know, you, you, you need to do stuff like that. How do you keep them in line? You know, how do you actually keep the machinery working and and kind of lubed up so that it's always moving? And I think in large part, you know, a lot of people tend to ignore that. They just look at this large pantheon of, of organizations. They go, well, there's no way they can control that without actually saying maybe the Iranians have calculated that they can't control everything, but this is a much better way to do it where they're, they're kind of two or three levels removed, um, you know, and, they're st- and still the moving pieces are, are moving. Um, so I, I think that also plays into a lot of this. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more. There was some reporting between the Tower 22 attack and this first round of airstrikes on on Friday. Um, a CNN article in particular comes to mind that was sourced apparently from inside the U.S. intelligence community claiming that the Iranians, the IRGC, the Quds Force, have, have gotten a bit nervous or concerned with some of the strategies and tactics these militias have been using against U.S. forces um, in the region. How do you how do you feel about that? Is there any have you seen any kind of no truth to that? No. OK, no, I don't see any truth to that. In fact, that sounds I, I mean, I, I can I can say it pretty straight out here. Um, that sounds like a, a pile of BS, Okay, uh, a pile of BS from policymakers and specific kind of, uh, I would say, politico people within the intelligence realm that uh, have their own kind of policy that they wish to push. And also, it does not actually fit with what these Iranian-backed groups have been doing. Uh, in fact, they've been so open uh, and, and I mean, demonstrably so. I mean, let's just look at the weapons, for instance. We're talking about a variety of these groups that are all part of that Islamic resistance in Iraq were quite open with their press announcements to say, we are entering into a second phase. And then they would change the weapon systems out and say, oh, we're using something more advanced now. Interesting. I didn't see the Iranians complain about that when they delivered those weapon systems to them. Yeah. And then also signed off on saying you can use those now. Because if we remember back to what happened with AAH, when they were using certain weapon systems that they were not approved for, guess what ended up happening? The Iranians said, guess what? You're not doing this anymore. Sorry, guys. Sorry, Charlie. You know, the supply is no longer there. So they can shut it down when they want to, and they will. Yes, yes. Okay. And there's a, also, there's a reason why they've picked very specific groups to operate through that are loyalists, because they will listen. This is not because, well, they're Iraqis, and they're just crazy, and they're just going to do their own thing. I, there have been instances of of Iraqis like in Syria being a little bit high hand, you know, a little, little nutty on, on the battlefield. But you're dealing with three of some of the most loyal groups that they have created. And yes, they may have their own notions on how violent they wish to be. But the Iranians, after learning the hard way, have really formed a setup that, you know, it's the loyalists, you know, carrying out these attacks. There's no denying that. There's, I say there's no denying that 
because the administration itself has said that, okay? The targeting that we have done uh, by, uh, against Iraqi Shia militia forces, if you look at the two groups that were targeted, it was Nujaba and it was Qatab Hezbollah, which has been, and Qatab Hezbollah has well known, it's been very, very well known since the beginning, since they were truly started from the 2005 to 2007 uh, chunk of time during the Iraq war. Um, it was so well known that they were hardcore Iranian loyalists that, I mean, even Iraqis would call them in, in leaked cables the Khamenei groups because they directly reported to Khamenei. You know, there is no denying that there. That, that is, that's essentially crafting an argument that doesn't actually exist. That's looking for nuance where there is none and then complaining about this lack of nuance you've found. You know, you know what I'm getting at? This is like right. something that academics do. Well, there should be more nuance here, but I'm going to write my thesis on why there's no nuance and there needs to be. Like it, it just it throws your brain into, you know, complete atrophy, and that's part of the the frankly, I would say that's part of the estimation here because that is not how these groups are working at all. Um and you know, it, again, it doesn't mean to say, I, I feel terrible having to kind of caveat this every single time, you know, it doesn't mean that the Iranians just use groups that are 100% loyal to them all the time, but you can see the process that and how it's going on in Iraq and what they've been using, and it clearly demonstrates that they have very deliberately picked those organizations to operate through because of their loyalty, because they can trust them with these different arms, because they can trust them with promoting the message. They wouldn't have done it otherwise. And by the way, the, the attacks that they have been launching, it is, you know, I have talked to enough people in Department of Defense. I've interviewed enough people. Um, I've interviewed enough people even within you know, Shia militia sections. Um, they're, they're targeting, it's like by, by the seat of our pants, we're kind of escaping casualties in many cases here. Yeah. Um, and the weapon systems that they're using are aiming to do exactly that. And what I find, again, this is another add-on to the fascination here. It's interesting. Every single time they're successful with one of the attacks and they've killed somebody, then what do they do? They back up and say, you know what? I think it's time for a ceasefire. It's it's like Hamas pulling this. You know, they had catastrophic success in the attack. And then once the the, the airstrikes and just complete destruction is being rained upon Gaza by the Israelis, you know, the response to that is, you know, I think it's a really good time for a ceasefire now. We got away with what we needed to do, but you know, it's perfect time for a ceasefire now. It is that blatant. It is that plain. It's really fascinating to kind of see this. It's the same modeling that's going on with this because they are reading. Uh, and, I, and again, I I feel bad saying this. I, I'm being quite blatant in, in what I'm, I'm seeing here, and it, it almost sounds partisan, and I don't want it to. Um, but you know, it, it is they're viewing the administration as being in a weak position and not able to really respond. And whenever they see that, whenever they you kind of give them a little rope, they're going to take even more. And they keep testing, testing, testing. They're going to keep flicking you in the back of the head until they're slapping you in the back of the head, until they're spitting at you in the back of the head. You know, it's you know, like you're sitting in a classroom. I was bringing that up earlier. Yeah. It's the same kind of kind of notion. Um, and so I think in this case, you know, it, I, it's just interesting how that's all playing out. And also, if I were an Iranian negotiator playing that game of, of implausible, plausible deniability, you know, it's the, yeah, you know, uh, we only have so much control, but you still have to go through us to make sure it stops. Wait, what? Yeah, that doesn't <laughs> make much sense. Yeah. yeah. Which is it? And, and you know, I think it's this wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more kind of, kind of policy. And I think for, you know, a lot of policy makers, they know they, they they know what the deal is, but it's the other question of, 
you know, you have to take it from, you know, have some empathy from, from their position too. You know, it's the, well, we don't need to get involved in yet another war, even though we are being dragged into another war. You know, it's, it's, I mean, I, I can kind of see that notion there. Um, and I can also see kind of the understanding of, well, you know, if we, we, we got to deal with this, if we're going to kind of back channel them and if we're going to kind of, you know, deescalate this whole thing and da, 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 da. I mean, I can see why they would throw something out like that, especially with all the criticism that's, well, hey, it's been six or seven days since, you know, this attack happened. You guys have been, quote unquote, telegraphing, you know, everything to the Iranians, you know, and what you want to do. Um, you know, I, it's just, it, it's interesting because, I mean, that's, it, it's a strategy that frankly has been around since earlier than 2010. Mm-hmm. Oh, we just don't know the nature of the groups and we have no idea what's going on here. And and I would say, you know, we have far better institutional memory than than we did in say 2010 yeah. about some of these these groups it, to the point where it's like ludicrous coming out um and thus infuriating for me i mean there's been there's been enough written here where normally i complain about how little is written about about shia militias and about uh, about iran's proxy networks but there is so much written and these guys i like i know that they've read it like it's give me a break yeah. it, it's it's just it does not pass the sniff test at all yeah um, so it just, it, it really, get, it really grinds my gears. Sorry. That's all right. So, okay. So that's probably a good segue into the, uh, administration's response to tower 22 so far. So let me give you some, uh, details on that. On Friday, February 2nd, the U.S. Air Force utilizing B-1 long-range bombers and fighter aircraft carried out strikes against 85 targets across seven facilities in Iraq and Syria. The targeted facilities, as reported by U.S. Central Command, included command and control operations centers, intelligence centers, rockets, missiles, and drone storage depots, as well as logistics and munitions supply chain facilities belonging to militia groups. Somewhere in the range of 46 militia figures are believed to have been killed in the strikes, The Pentagon has indicated that further rounds of strikes could follow in the days and weeks ahead. Um, So, Philip, what's your take on this response to Tower 22? Um, I I don't think it was the correct style of response for a few different reasons. Um, Again, very interesting show of force, but the show of force did not really show itself, to be perfectly frank. I, you know, I've noticed this quite a bit. This has been kind of the the Twitter X, uh, uh, one of the responses on there, which I happen to, to agree with because it's, I mean, it is true. Um, look at the Israelis when they're responding to Hezbollah issues in the north and they're dealing with IRGC uh, in the north of their country. Um, they're very tight-lipped about who they're going to kill and when. Um, and then they've, what have they done? They've killed a number of senior IRGC commanders that have very prominent roles yeah. helping Lebanese Hezbollah and coordinating efforts with Hamas and kind of doing a, a bunch of other things. Uh, there have been a lot of them that have been shipped back in body bags to Iran to the point where the Iranians have been going, oh, holy crap, there is an issue here. You know, they are knocking these guys off and, you know, we got to go to ground. I mean, I remember they even like, this is nonsense. There's no IRGC leaving Syria, but they're saying, God, we're going to have to, you know, evacuate some guys here. And I remember that was kind of hitting certain deliberately English language press yes. uh, organ. Um, I mean, it's not really true, but it's interesting how much, how much, uh, uh, I guess, uh, uh, smoke they've kind of kicked up um, because of that, because that's an actual hit that they're worried about. Th- those are irreplaceable, you know, uh, mid-level, senior-level commanders. Those are people with their fingers on the buttons. Those are people who have, you know, network connections, and it's very hard to replace them. And so, 
you know, you look at that in terms of a response that Lebanese Hezbollah is launching against the Israelis or, or kind of a preventative measure by the Israelis, that has, has actually received a response from the Iranians. Now, you haven't seen a real militant response in that context, you know, from all these commanders getting knocked off. Um, but it's fascinating to me because that, I mean, you look, you remember back to Soleimani and Mohandas, um, there was there was effect that occurred because of that. It degraded operational capabilities with them. It degraded networking. You know, it degraded all of these things. Um, and you know, it's it's kind of fascinating. You know, that was going on perfectly fine on on one side, and and that's not how we executed. Instead, what the United States did was for over a week, uh, we were saying, well, we're going to respond at a time and place of our choosing. Okay, that's all. That's fine. That's all well and good. I don't mind that. But then it extended out. We're going to hit the IRGC and it uh, we'll do it wherever we want. And we're going to do this and then we're going to do this and then we're going to do this. And then everybody who's monitoring the screen where they can see where the planes are flying from, you know, can see, oh, you know, it's, gr it's great. I can go on Twitter and know about the airstrike four hours before it's occurred in Iraq. I'm pretty sure that didn't send any signals to guys who literally follow this more closely because they've been bombed before. Um, I mean, and then you look at you look at the targets. Yes, we targeted. Uh, Kataba Hezbollah was targeted. Um, you had a, a number of other groups that were out there. So if you look at the sites, these are kind of sites that have been hit before. Th these are not, you know, these are not new. I, I actually did the Shia militia mapping project uh, back in the day for the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. Uh, did it from uh, 2019. It went from 2018 to 2021. Uh, that was the stuff that I was putting up on it. Um, and so a few of the key areas we hit a lot of targets in uh, in eastern Syria, uh, a lot of targets in western Iraq. So on that Syria-Iraq border, that's really where we concentrated things, uh, namely in uh, an Iraqi town called Al-Qaim. Um, and then across the line from Al-Qaim, you have uh, Al-Bukamal, uh, which is the Syrian town that's there. And then to its south, you have Akasha. Uh, this is, uh, it's like right on the border with Syria. Um, so you have kind of the the real loyal uh, Iranian-controlled and Iranian-backed uh, Shia militias in that area. So upwards of 10 of them. Kitab Hezbollah being a main coordinator and a main one. Uh, one of the sites that we actually hit belongs to a group called Liwal Tafuf. Mm -hmm. uh, and the hilarious thing of this is, I mean, if you, if you want to hear a good example for how the Shia militia guys actually thought the U.S. was going to respond because we totally knew who we should be targeting, the Liwal Tafuf people, so Liwal Tafuf, their commander uh, is actually the commander of uh, Western Anbar, which is where that, that section is. Um, so if you're out there in Western Anbar, he is the big, you know, uh, Qasim al-Musle, that's his name. Um, but uh, if you're dealing with it, you're dealing with him. So we hit one of his facilities. Well, the reason they had so many casualties there was because his group was like, yeah, they're not going to hit us because we're not necessarily involved in this. Yeah, we're, we play uh, closely with KH and we sometimes will be over the border in Syria and we'll sometimes be doing X, Y, and Z. Um, but they're not going to hit us because they already know the deal. Um, I mean, that, that was, I mean, that was some of the chatter that was coming out of that. Um, so it's, it's interesting to kind of look at that, but who did we hit? We were not targeting. I remember there were, because we actually hit that Liwa Tafuf site, people thought that, that Musla was, was, was killed, uh, which I mean, it was quite clear that he wasn't, you know, but we didn't kill any senior junior commanders, none of them. We were hitting, um, smaller positions. I mean, I remember the Heshtal Shabi, you know, the overarching kind of Iraqi government uh, 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 sp sponsored umbrella group for a lot of these Shia militias that the Iranians control. Um, 
you know, they had come out and they said, yeah, well, you know, they hit an anti-tank missile uh, uh, battalion uh, site. Oh, okay. I did, did not realize that that, you know, had some you know, target. I didn't realize that that was required to target. Um, they hit people from, uh, so it's the 45th Brigade. Uh, that's the Catawba's Bola section. And they hit a bunch of other little sections that were out there. Um, and then in Syria, you know, they hit some Syrian Hezbollah because there's been a number of, they call them Syrian Hezbollah, but the number of different smaller groups that are controlled by uh, Lebanese Hezbollah and the Iranians, and they're located in, in eastern Syria near Deir al-Zur uh, and Abu Kamal. Um, so you had kind of issues out there, you know, where we hit those guys. But these are all very low-ranking people. These are people that, you know, we lost... You know, again, I don't, I, I don't want this to sound partisan, but I think the comparison is needed. There was a line that Donald Trump delivered where he said, "If you kill an American, you know, one drop of American blood, and we're going to take a gallon from you, from the Iranians." You know, quite a, quite a flourish in terms of, of, uh, of rhetoric. Um, and he did actually do that. You know, we lost a contractor uh, in December of 2019. Then uh, the Iranian-backed Shia militias started to try and raid. Uh, the U.S. embassy that was there, and so our response to that was to kill Qasem Soleimani and Mohandas, and also you know ten other uh, uh, junior and senior level aides to them. Yeah, uh, in that airstrike. So I mean, you look at that, and then you juxtapose it to this. Yeah, we we hit with a very heavy hammer, but then what did we hit? You know, hooray! We've destroyed yet another empty, uh, you know, another <laughs> another empty gas station and another uh, weapons storage facility. Oh, you got some cool images of some rockets firing off, and. You know, what's the deal? And I mean, to say, well, and we got 50 for three. Well, those are 50 people that they will pretty much repopulate uh, very, very quickly uh, into the ranks of those organizations. So, I mean, at the end of the day, it's kind of not, I mean, you look at the balance and you look at kind of, well, what are the the other tertiary effects? What are the secondary tertiary effects of it? Is this really going to turn anything off? Um, it doesn't really do that. You know, it's just, yeah. it's not where we are. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but you believe that the kind of best and only way to deter more of these attacks is to kill a lot more senior people than we have to date. Well, I don't necessarily look, I, I don't think everything needs to be it needs to come down to, well, we need to just keep killing people. OK. Um, in fact, I, you know, there's part of me that would say. I think policymakers sometimes look for responses that will also feed a domestic agenda um, I mean, that's kind of the case a lot of times. And, you know, we're jumping, we're, we're, we're dumping, you know, JDAMs on the Houthis and like all sorts of other crazy stuff. Uh, I look at it in terms of, well, what would have the most outsized effect? You know, what would be, if you want a positive end effect, I mean, even when it comes to killing people, do you need a 500 pound bomb to do it? Or, you know, maybe some other, other kind of method, uh, maybe something a little bit more covert, you know, maybe you don't necessarily need to go out and do that. I mean, I don't even know. I mean, how would I know if it was being investigated? But, you know, it, it kind of would seem a, a better use of resources uh, than just doing a humongous bombing run that's just hitting a bunch of dust huts. You know, right. it's just not it, it just doesn't really seem uh, all that that special. Um, now, what I would say is, I mean, the way you counter this again, if we're using other examples um, and it's not me promoting one over the other, but it's just let's look for outsized effect. Um, when Soleimani and Mohandas were killed, that had a genuine effect on the the network and modes of control, the the nodes of control, excuse me, for a lot of these Iraqi Shia militias. It did. Now, it, you see how this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. Well, how many do they really control, and how do you know that? I mean, 
that that's where somebody could kind of come in and say, well, are you arguing against yourself? No, I'm not. I'm actually not. Um, it, it's you'll notice that the Iranians were faced with an issue. So what did they do? They rallied around their core guys. You know, you know what I'm getting at? It's like their core guys are there and they've also found other deconfliction mechanisms to kind of deal with this. But it took them three years, four years to do that. I mean, that's like an open opportunity. Uh, and that causes a lot of other friction, a lot of other issues. Um, but you look at something like that. Well, a lot of these old hand guys are getting older. They're getting long in the tooth. Um, you know, a lot of these these other commanders, these other figures, um, they're not making the same level of replacement for them. And we saw this in the Syrian war when a lot of senior, very experienced fighters that were mid-level commanders were killed and kind of who Lebanese Hezbollah would have to really pull on and who the Iraqi Shia militias would have to pull on. Uh, you know, it, it demonstrates something where, you know, I think to have that kind of effect, you take out certain commanders, you take out certain leadership, but you also, it, I mean, that's also where the demonstration of power projection comes from. You know, I think we're also running into this line, which is deterrence, deterrence, deterrence. Well, okay, well, that cat's already out of the bag. So let's, let's, you know, let's forget about that for two seconds. Um, it's now, you know, okay, how do we project ourselves and kind of get something done so that we can reestablish that, you know, one, our interests actually have a place in the Middle East, but two, you know, you can't just act with impunity. I think we, we unfortunately, there has to be some level of acceptance now, regardless of what we want, when it comes to, hey, you know, the, these, the militias, I thought that the their attacks on us would just stop if we bombed them. You know, I've heard this, I've heard this commentary quite a bit, but that's not actually the thinking that's going on there. These guys, by necessity, have to keep hitting to demonstrate that the Iranians have some level of power and some level of, of projection against the United States. Right. We're going to keep doing it. But the issue is, well, what's the cost-benefit analysis here? What's the cost-benefit ratio? You know, I, it's interesting how people have, you know, flipped a lot of this because it's the, well, do you remember when the Iranians launched these ballistic missiles at American sites after Soleimani? And they kept doing these drone attacks Okay, compare that to what they were doing when the United States was in Iraq from 2010 to 2011. Well, I mean, again, they were, they were, these groups, even as front groups were, and I mean this recently in contemporary times, they were doing IED attacks and stuff like that, but a lot of them were fake. A lot of them were like little IED attacks on, on logistical networks. Like it was not, you know, it was not the same level. And I'm not saying we don't have the same force presence in the country, but it was not the same thing. And so what they've done is they they dialed it way down because they could only do so much and they were scared. And then what they're doing is they're slowly turning that dial back up. Hey, we'll use a Shahed 129 drone this time. Yeah. You know, we'll use a, this the larger rocket this time. We'll threaten sites uh, that are in Jordan and Israel tomorrow. And that's what we'll do here. And it's little by little by little. It's, you know, it's like turning the heat up on that frog, you know, so it boils in the water. And that's essentially how they've been promoting it privately and also quite publicly. Um, and it's, it's kind of the schema for how they're doing it. But I, I think it's the, if you demonstrate that a lot of those, those little nodes that they have out there no longer have, uh, the, again, they no longer can really be operationalized in an effective way because you've removed command elements, or maybe you've removed a specific arms cache or, you know, something here or there. It, it requires a little bit more 
organization and 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 I think concerted effort as opposed to just looking for a response. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. No, that's helpful, I think. Anything else you would like to discuss or or cover, get off your chest that we haven't yet today? Floor is yours, sir. God help us all. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think I, I, what what worries me quite a bit about a lot of this going on um we're we're trapping ourselves in an earlier picture and when i say that it's kind of you know looking at what was leaked out into the media well we have no idea how much control is over these groups privately anybody in policy knows exactly that the iranians control the groups that were launching these things on us but the problem that happens is and i've noticed this from the iraq war on because again there's very little institutional memory um People will read back and they'll say, well, we still, we had no idea and it was so fractious and we didn't know. I'm shocked to hear this from, you know, it's a sign that I'm getting a little long in my tooth too, um, from, you know, younger analysts who sometimes will kind of come up and they'll ask me a question. Yeah, but you know how fractious it is. Like it's this rejoinder now. Yes, they are, but let's contextualize that. Let's not kind of play this game of, well, we didn't, we never really knew. I mean, heck, what me worry, you know, it's, I've noticed that that, that will gain traction, that will gain steam. And then when you actually have to fight these enemies later on, you know, you're already kind of disabused of thinking of it logically or with factual basis or, you know, like clinically. Um, now it's turned into, but there was these articles published that they really didn't have all that much control. So who knows? It's just autonomous. Ah, help us. Um, and I that really scares me down the line. That really scares me down the line for American policymaking. Yeah. Uh, wow, that's a good point. And and it's it, it it's not a good sign. The other thing is looking at how we're dealing with Ansar Allah, aka the Houthis. Um, that's another case example where I would say, oh, cool. So they launched a bunch, you know, a bunch of JDAMs and da 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 da, you know, against the Houthis, who were essentially winning against the Saudis, who were you know doing the same thing but heavier and actually far more aggressively. Um, I mean, in this kind of it switches my thinking on a lot of this. Well, okay, who are these key nodes that are here? that are coordinating with the Iranians, who are launching these missiles, who are getting the shipments in. I'm not saying we weren't interdicting things or kind of doing things uh, somewhat effectively uh, to kind of counter those, those, those measures, but I, I would wish that we would get out of this kind of almost childish stomping on the ground and saying, and we bombed them, we showed them, you know, and, and actually focused on it in a far more concerted effort to kind of say, no, these are the individuals who are, who are pushing buttons here. Because again, I mean, I also look at, you know, cost benefit analysis. If you want to look at it that way, you know, it's interesting how the, these, uh, a lot of the Iraqi Shia militias that the Iranians were using in the front groups would put up like cost benefit stuff. Like we, we destroyed, you know, this much uh, American equipment, this cost them this much. And look at how burdened the taxpayer is in America. Like they, they were thinking Jeez. along those lines, but you know, I, I, let's flip that on its head and use it for Americans. Well, okay, cool. We just used, like, how much does a JDAM cost? And how much does this cost? How much does deploying stuff from, you know, naval vessel cost? I mean, there are better targets out there and there are better ways of sending signals. And, you know, I, I think that we are caught in so many contradictory sections of thinking. It's it's the, well, we want to de-escalate, but look at what we did with our bomber. Okay, maybe we could have used that more effectively, and maybe we could have done this better. And it's just all this stuff is kind of swirling around. I'm sorry I'm not being as clear as I normally would would want to be, but I mean I feel conflicted in my head, you know, hearing this kind of all hashed out, and then kind of going, yeah, but then what's the end conclusion? And I think we are not coming to 
proper end conclusions and we're not using the proper methods to kind of deliver ourselves to a, a better kind of endpoint. Yeah. I don't know, man. I think you're living us you're giving us a lot to 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 think about here. Um I don't know. I don't I don't I don't have any good answers here. Um Yeah. Well shit. <laughs> Glad to leave on that heavy note. Yeah. All right. Well, this is definitely probably not, I can guarantee, not the last round of these strikes that we'll see. Uh, there will be more. Yeah. So I guess we're just going to have to keep an eye on it. Um, no real uh, hard and fast kind of um, answers or, or or resolutions today. But, you know, that's the that's the region, I guess. Well, it's part of the territory. I just. Uh, yeah. I, it, it's. I, I think there are so many different political concerns, both internationally and domestically, that are at play right now. That you know, if if I'm looking at it just from you know the the Philip position of hi, I'm Philip, I do Shia militias. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally could have a few answers for you, and even some answers that I would contradict uh, my own answers. That is, um, and I, I mean, imagine adding that on to all of those other concerns, and also a lot of other kind of wonky thinking, or you know, people who may people I would maybe argue don't have the correct thinking on this because they're also included in this too. Um, and I think we're seeing the end result of that kind of atrophied thinking. And I keep saying atrophied thinking. I think it's there's combinations of analysis paralysis, a lack of action, a lack of knowing what to do, a disinterest in general when it comes to the region. Um, and there's just so much swirling. I mean, we we now literally have, remember the administration was denying this, but a regional war that has been based around what ha- what occurred uh, with Gaza and Israel on October 7th. Um, and so it's just, it's like one thing, it's layer upon layer upon layer. You know, it's it's the, the Shrek model of, you know, it's an onion. Yeah. All right. Well, I think it's probably a good place to leave it here today. Twitter is probably the best place for people to find more about you and your work. Is that correct? Yeah. They can reach out to me and I'll do my best to be polite and somewhat nice. They're nice to me. All right. We'll have uh, links to all that stuff in the show notes. Yeah, this is the uh, the the third. This is the third show that you've been on with us. I'm a regular. Um, I think uh, you know how like SNL has like the five timers club that if you host five times, you get like a special jacket or something. I think I'm gonna have to talk to Chris about making one of those for when you I would wear that jacket. Yeah, I would wear yeah. that jacket. We just have to make sure it has like a Lashkar Fatimi and logo on the front or something. <laughs> yeah, just kind of. Do you think they would they would hit us with like a cease and desist if we if we use their if we use their branding without permission? Something tells me that, that I mean I would doubt that. Um, I mean then again we there've been other groups that have caused other issues regarding their music that has been sampled before. <laughs> um, but no, I think we can get away with that one. I mean, hey, that's directly controlled IRGC Pakistani Shia unit. I think that they're going to be cool with it. I mean, the marketing could you could you imagine that with. I, I'm going to be totally self-deprecating here. I mean, with a guy like me wearing that around the D.C. metro area, oh, they would wish for that kind of marketing. Oh, man. Yeah, you would get off of like Roslyn or like the Pentagon and stuff. And like you would it would just be it would just be pandemonium down there. Sup, bro. Yeah, and I know you love it. (laughs) All the SAIC contractors like just not knowing how to handle it. No, I don't wear a CAC because it covers up the logo. (laughs) (laughs) 
Thank you once more for for all of your awesome uh, analysis here. Um, no no better person I could think of to 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 ask to come on when stuff like this goes down. And I know you're uh, a bit you've been a bit under the weather, so thank you for for coming on and 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 pushing through it today. Well, no no worries. I just hope that you as you were hearing my voice progressively change and drop in octave. That look, I was doing this for the team, so I totally deserve a jacket now. Thanks, man. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you. Until next time, dude. Thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. This is Secrets and Spies.